This episode of Inside Acting is brought to you in part by VO2GoGo, the award-winning voiceover training system and winner of Backstage's Reader's Choice Award for Best VO Training four years in a row. Visit VO2GoGo.com slash start for a free getting started in voiceover online class that will help you add voiceover to your acting portfolio. That's VO2GoGo.com slash start. Hello and welcome to episode 134 of Inside Acting. I'm AJ Meyer. And I'm Trevor Algott. And on this podcast, we interview writers, directors, agents, casting directors, managers, producers, Emmy-winning showrunners, <laughs> uh, lyricists, composers, anyone involved in the entertainment industry. We package it up in this little podcast where we also uh, talk about the uh, news of the week. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we answer listener questions and such, and then we uh, put it on the internet for you fine folks. And the list of guests keep on growing. I love it, man. Showrunners, lyricists. I, I love it. Gotta keep the wheels on this bus, baby. Yes, we do. the wheels on this bus. And, you know, we're two dudes with a podcast. We don't, um, we didn't start this thing because we think we have the answers and are trying to sell people something. Really, we were just two dudes who were looking for the answers, and we figured what better way to find them to, than to get out there and talk to people who've kind of been there, done that, and are doing it again. So, that's all this is. If you hear something on this show that you blatantly disagree with and think that's awful advice, or if you hear something and you think, you know what, that changed my life, I need to... To tell you how. Uh, go ahead and shoot us an email, call us, whatever. Get started with all the various ways you can be in touch with us over at our website on the interwebs at insideactingpodcast.com. Yes, changing lives, Trevor. One changing lives across this great nation. <laughs> there it is. And uh, on this episode, besides our blabbering, uh, we have uh, we have that Emmy Award winning showrunner, uh, Mr. Kevin Murphy. Who is coincidentally? Oh, what a coincidence! Also, the co-writer of the off-Broadway musical *Heather's*. So, stick around for that. So, what's going on, my East Coast brother? What, what? How is it out there? Hold it down the, in the NYC. In chilly New York City. I saw a picture of <clears throat> Jasmine, I think, on Instagram or something, and she had these big earmuffs on, and she was all bundled up in a big trench coat-looking thing, and looked very cozy. We were welcomed, we were welcomed into the loving arms of the coldest, craziest, stormiest winter in what some people are saying 15, 20 years. Yeah. It is out of control. It's gotten better uh, this week. It started warming up, which means that the precipitation went from snow to rain. But uh, we had two massive... There were, like, a massive storm had rolled through before we got here. So we were uh, unloading, not in the snow, but climbing over snow uh, when we were unloading uh, the van when we first got here. Impressive. And then... What's that? I said impressive. Impressive, Yes. We're definitely, we've definitely been missing the uh, Southern California sunshine. Um, and then there have been two or three storms that have come through since then. I know this is going to sound really obvious, but it requires a whole other set of clothing. Mm. And like I said, if to, to some people who are from the colder parts of the country, they're probably laughing their butts off at me right now. But look, I did not have the proper shoe wear to contend with this kind of insanity. And uh, I spent a couple of days bringing multiple pairs of socks to rehearsal so that I could make it to and from <laughs> rehearsal and then change out of my socks and put the socks that got wet on top of the heater in the rehearsal room so that they could, you know, dry off and, and warm up before I, you know, went out went and ventured out for lunch and, 
got the other pair of socks wet that I had brought. Like, it was it was a ridiculous game of, like, oh, my God, when can I have some rain boots? Cool, man. Cool. Anyway, uh, yeah, the weather has been challenging. But other than that, we are we are enjoying ourselves. We are getting settled in here. Um, it's... Uh, what can I say, man? It's a different. It's a different. It's a different animal, a different beast. But being in rehearsals has been nice, and being especially having um, someone like you know Tony Award-winning Anthony Cravello <clears throat> in our show. Um, you know, I'm actually his understudy, and in addition to being um, in the ensemble, and just being able to, to watch him work, but then also ask him questions when we're on breaks and stuff like that. He and I have, uh, he's been very kind and generous with his time, and, and we've had a lot of conversations about um, sort of his journey a, a, as an actor and um, some of the differences. He works a lot on both coasts as well, so some of the differences there and um, his... Uh, representation highs and lows and it's been it's been interesting so there's a lot to learn but that was part of the reason that i decided to come was so that i could learn those things how (coughs) sweet is it to be acting for a living right now there's that quote that i really love that's uh you know we get paid to wait the acting we do for free Hmm. Um, i love that so, you know, maybe maybe I'm not getting paid to be an actor right now. Maybe I'm getting paid for all those years and weeks and months where I didn't have a paying gig. Yeah, it, it does feel good. I, I, I remember once saying, I think it was after I came to New York the first and only time I'd ever been here, that I would never, ever live here or never move out here unless it was for a job. And that came true. So. Bam. That's kind of interesting. Look at that. Ask and you shall receive. Huh. Yes, many years later, but but yeah. uh, but here it is. Yeah. How are things on the left coast, my friend? Things are good, man. You know, it got down to like a chilly 58 or 57, I think, today. Um, Our high this week is going to be 50. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was in Philly, man, it would get it, anytime it went even close to 60, people busted out like the shorts and the sandals and stuff and the t-shirts. Like, I remember 60 degrees being, like, the cutoff and be, it being, like, oh, yeah, it's getting hot now. <laughs> and out here in L.A., it's, like, 60 degrees, dude. Break out the scarves. Break out the earmuffs. Break out, you know, the winter coats. Uh, no, things are good, man. Not really a whole lot has changed. My whole week was spent um, watching House of Cards and... Uh, oh, I'm and, so jelly. And, and writing, honestly. I've just been really um, spending a lot of time writing. So it's been a, a quiet, relaxing, sort of creatively uh, entrenched past few days over here. I I really want to uh, catch up on the on the House of Cards thing. I mean, I know it's going to be there because uh, as of right now, the internet is forever. But I uh, <laughs> I've been uh, I've been in rehearsal land. Rehearsal, rehearsal land. land, rehearsal land, rehearsal land. So, well, I yeah. think I think there's a pros and cons to both of our situations. <laughs> yes, know? there are. So. Yes, there are. Cool, man. Grass is always greener, huh? Yeah, right. So we have a couple of emails we wanted to respond to. Um, in particular, we have two emails. One from. Um, Actually, three emails. Forgive me. One from Scotty, one from Marie, and one from Mark. And they address a whole kind of variety of things. So um, first off, we have Scotty, who... uh, This is pretty cool, man. He wrote to us from Antarctica. He's... uh, Yeah, baby. (laughs) Doing some work at the McMurdo Research Station. I don't know what that is. I haven't Googled it or anything yet, but it sounds pretty badass. And he said he's just trying to, you know, make a few extra bucks... uh, um, while he, you know, pays off some school loans and things like that. And he's just been listening to the podcast as he's been working his shifts. And I think that's so cool. By the way, winner, winner of the, I'm just trying to make a few extra bucks before I move to like, you know, a major market like LA or New York or what have you, like of all the ways you could possibly be doing that. He's, this guy's in Antarctica. Like, what? I, yeah. I, I seriously, I read this email and it made my brain explode out of my ears. It was 
It was like a reverse knowledge bomb. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, you, we don't think of Antarctica as being uh, a place. I think that really something like this would go to. I, I don't know. I don't know quite why I'm so surprised about it, but I, I'm not surprised, but just like pleasantly. Um, yeah, I guess surprised, pleasantly surprised, but I don't know. It's just, it's I think just really the word cool. is tickled. I think the word you're looking for is tickled, Trevor. Yeah, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. But anyway, Scotty, we just think it's really cool, man. Um, you know, coming from a place like L.A. or New York City, Antarctica sounds really remote to us. So it's it's really cool to hear that um, that this little thing we do is having an impact all the way out there. So thanks for writing in, for your kind words, for listening, and um, for letting us know that... Uh, that uh, you know, we got some some love out there. Is there any way to prove by looking at our numbers that we've reached every every single continent now, like all seven continents? Uh, I'm sure there is. I bet you there is. I know our website is pretty much like global at this point. We're getting like thousands and thousands of hits a day on our website. It's pretty cool. That's really like growing awesome. exponentially. Thanks, listeners. Uh, Ding. <laughs> Uh, so we also have uh, an email from Marie, and her email is a little bit more technical in scope. She basically just, and I wanted to just bring it up on the show because this is um, something that other listeners are probably encountering. She says that um, uh, episodes six through thirty-five or so of of the podcast are not on the iTunes Store. It's somehow not showing up in our feed. So I'm not really sure what's going on there. I have a, f- a feeling that. Um, our podcast provider limits our podcast to like a hundred ish episodes in the feed at any one given time, but I'll have to look into it. But, uh, Marie basically wanted to know if there's any way that she can find those episodes somewhere else. Uh, and the answer is we're not really sure what's going on. Um, I thought you might be able to go to our website and stream all the episodes there, but, um, uh, apparently that's not working either. So I will, uh, look into it or find somebody to help us to look into it and uh, hopefully have it resolved in the next week or two. So thank you, Marie, for listening and for bringing that to our attention. Um, I hope there's enough content that is available to uh, get you through until we figure that out. <laughs> there's a surprising uh, uh, number of people who, who, once they find the show, end up uh, going back and, and listening to those early episodes. And it always, um, it always makes me smile um, to know that people are going back to yeah. listen to Albert and... Trevor, instead of AJ and Trevor. That's right. Uh, we have a third email from Mark, who is one of our beautiful patrons. And uh, this is a cool email that I wanted to just bring up on the actual show because um, AJ, you and I um, are slash were slash are soon to be again part of a mastermind group together. Basically, he's creating a mastermind group where he lives and he's wondering if we had resources we could draw from we could connect him to that he could draw from to create it. Um, if we have any, um, kind of tips or anything like that, that we wanted to share for those that aren't familiar with the idea of a mastermind group, it's essentially a, a small gathering of maybe, I don't know, I guess really anywhere from like two or three to like probably 10 or 12 people, um, that kind of get together every so often, weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, I'm sorry, bi-monthly, whatever. And uh, and so they get together and they basically just share resources, support each other in um, life challenges and the pursuit of their goals and building relationships and careers and things like that. And it's been really uh, essential for, I know, both of us. So um, right off the bat, man, I mean, um, what has a mastermind group been for you and what uh, what might you share with, with Mark and um, well, our listeners? I, I, I do want to, you know, toss this back to you, Trev, because I know you've actually consumed, you know, books and other materials on, you know, what how to create a successful masterminds group and, and what a successful masterminds group is. But for me, the two things that I would say <clears throat> are, number one, accountability, and number two, um, the only way I can think to say it is sort of raising the bar. So going back to number one, um, you know, we all have we all have goals. We all set out to, you know, achieve those goals, and or at least you know, hopefully, if you've listened to the podcast enough, it, goal setting and is something that you're starting to do now. But we don't always have the 
discipline to be working consistently on those goals. And so to have uh, a team there to support you in, in, in making those things happen can be really supportive. And, um, that, that's been huge for me with, with our masterminds group. And then the second thing, um, with what I was saying about, uh, raising the bar, it's sort of like the notion, I think I've said this on the podcast before, the notion of all ships rise with the tide. Like when you surround yourself with mm. people who are up to big things and, um, are like-minded and are, or not, and are, uh, essentially living their life in such a way that some aspect or some domain of their life is going to challenge you to be better, <clears throat> that's when you start to grow. So surrounding myself and, and Trevor, uh, you know, I don't know if you feel the same way about our, our masterminds group back there in, in LA, but surrounding myself with the caliber of people who are you know, business owners, former business owners, current business owners, um, actors, uh, uh, personal fitness experts, uh, personal finance experts, um, people who have access to lawyers, uh, people who have access to um, life coaches, people who have access to, I, I don't want to say necessarily celebrities, but tastemakers or, or people who... Um, make an impact in various fields, it, it, it sort of changes your mindset or, or it has changed my mindset and it, and it has upped my own game. So I think that those two things in combination have been really inspiring and motivating. I'm curious to know what you feel like a masterminds group is um, you know, what a successful one is, uh, how you see yourself, you know, benefiting from it, etc. Yeah, totally, dude. Um, I'm, I've been in love with the idea of a masterminds group since I first read about it in Think and Grow Rich. Like, I want to say like six or seven years ago. Do you remember like when we were still living at that place on Wilshire and Westwood and I had read about it and I was like, you, me and Nelson got to get together and like start this thing. And do you remember us? I was talking about I, I that. Do. I didn't really know how to implement it. I just, yeah, I just loved the idea of it, but I didn't know how to implement it. So it, it kind of fell apart before it ever started. But um, as I read more about it, I became more and more in love with the idea. And I was part of a masterminds group for a while um, that ended up being sort of like an accountability group. And I liked, I want to make a distinction between accountability groups and mastermind groups because I think they're a little bit different. They're both equally effective depending on what kind of person you are and what kind of how you best work. But essentially, an accountability group is a bunch of people that keep each other accountable to doing what they said they would do that week for their career, for their life, for their relationships, for their health, for their money, whatever it is. So they share very openly. And maybe there's a buddy system of some kind that they implement within the group, or maybe there's a weekly coach, an accountability coach or something, which is what we had in our group for a little while. Um, and that that person, you know, they kind of, in that way, they, the group kind of keeps you on task, which is, which is great. Um, personally, that doesn't work terribly well for me, although I know many people for whom that works really, really well. Um, a masterminds group is different in that there's a, the accountability is more on the individual and the group exists as essentially a support group with, like you were just saying, lots and lots of shared resources, lots of support for any domain of life. And I think what the main purpose of that is, is it's a place you can come to, uh, or a group of people you can come to and be really, just feel really safe and know that you guys are constantly challenging each other to move to a higher level, that you're constantly engaged in learning. And the phrase that I read recently that I really loved was the idea of iron sharpening hmm. iron. I'm saying iron weird. But um, I, I really love that idea because it, it creates, I think, an atmosphere of, of it being okay to challenge each other. To saying, you know what, I think that's bullshit what you just said, and I think you're playing small, and I think you can do bigger than this, and here's what I can bring to the table to help you, and like that kind of thing. And and, and the person to whom that feedback is being given is not going to get all butthurt about it. They're going to be like, thank you for the feedback, man. Like, thanks for, you know, for lack of a better description, holding me in my greatness or, you know, whatever. 
So I think that's really the the main point of a mastermind group. Uh, another great so yeah, there's a chapter in uh, Think and Grow Rich about masterminds. There's a chapter in uh, a book called The Success Principles by Jack Canfield that I really really love. One of my favorite books of all time. Uh, he talks about masterminds there, and then uh, our friend Gadali just sent me a link to uh, an ebook of some kind that ha- was all about creating a mastermind group, and that was probably the most informative document of them all. So I'll see if I can link to all three of those resources uh, on our website for anybody who'd like to learn more. But um, I-, I think that masterminds groups seem to be one of those things that are suddenly in like the zeitgeist. Mm. You know, they kind of seem to be, like, mm-hmm. really popular all of a sudden. And I feel like amongst the people I know, they're, like, sprouting up like wildfire everywhere. Um, so anything that we can add just to, you know, support people in doing them, uh, I guess, the most productively as possible is, is awesome. So I'm really glad that Mark wrote in with this question. And uh, check our website for some resources. Well, I think uh, that about does yeah. it then for this first chunk of the show. Yeah, so Kevin uh, uh, is one of the uh, co-writers of Heathers, the musical. He also has had a long, long career as a writer and and now producer in Hollywood, which is no easy feat. Um, so he talks a little bit about how he got his start in this first half but, uh, you know, also, one of the reasons I was really excited to have Kevin on the show is just he's so, so brilliant. He's so smart. And the way that he looks at, um, you know, uh, his life and the industry and his craft are all very similar. And they all stem from who he is and him knowing himself and him just being really smart. So it's really it was really fascinating to me to watch... Uh, him uh, interweave, you know, how he sees um, the entertainment industry with, you know, what he uh, enjoys creating as a as a content creator. Cool. Well, I haven't heard the awesome. uh, the interview yet, so I'm stoked to uh, give it a listen right now. Yeah, man. Uh, without further ado, then I guess we'll just jump in. This is uh, part one of AJ's chat with Kevin Murphy, and we'll see you guys on the other side. AJ and I'm sitting here with uh, someone we're very excited to have on the podcast. Um, another multi-hyphenate, but probably more hyphens than you could shake a stick at. Uh, we've got writer, producer, showrunner, composer, lyricist, Emmy award-winning Kevin Murphy. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, hi. I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> How's that for an intro? Did I did I hit them all? Or? Uh, you hit all the ones that I can remember. Okay, so you've you've forgotten some as well. Awesome. So, um, we usually just like to start, you know, right at the beginning, kind of talking about how one gets into this crazy business, and everyone has their own particular path, their own particular story. So, how did you get your start? Well, I started by uh, cultivating in high school a deep and abiding love for theater, and I was... uh, I was kind of a nerdy kid in middle school and my freshman year, and uh, at no point did I actually stop being a nerdy kid, but I discovered the value of teaming up with other nerdy kids on the stage crew. We could form sort of a power phalanx in our own way. And uh, so I did did, uh, light boards and set construction, and we were uh, a group that worked out of our high school, and we leased ourselves out to the various regional theaters in uh, the southern New Jersey uh, area. And people would pay us because we would essentially work for beer money. And I just uh, got to be backstage for a lot of classic musicals. And I just really, really fell in love with the art form. When I later uh, went to uh, college, which was at Drew University in Madison, I um, continued that. And I wrote a couple of uh, musicals with a partner. And I was getting Dan Studney, who I later would go on to write the musical Reef from Madness with. Um, my problem was when I got to the end of... Uh, senior year, I didn't think it was very realistic that I could actually make a living wage uh, being a professional lyricist, so I turned to television instead because that seemed like 90% like the thing that I really, really loved to do. So uh, my college uh, roommate, Gunny Ferrara, and I uh, wrote a couple of TV spec scripts, 
And uh, we decided to roll the dice, and right after we graduated, we got in our cars, and we drove out to Los Angeles. Uh, got jobs at uh, Jerry's Famous Deli in Encino. And, wow. Uh, waited tables, and we got jobs in about nine months on staff in a television show, which, uh, to put in perspective, is kind of like winning the Irish sweepstakes uh, <laughs> yeah. from a statistical standpoint. Nine it was months. extremely unlikely. And we were really, really, really lucky. Um, and that first job was a god-awful sitcom on the uh, family channel called Big Brother Jake, which starred uh, Jake Steinfeld, who was the body by Jake uh, fitness uh, guru. Oh, right. And uh, God help them, they made a hundred episodes of that, and it wow. went four years, and it bought my townhouse. <laughs> there you go. Um, so for those who don't know a spec, spec script, you're talking about like you were actually writing scripts for TV shows that already existed? Exactly. That was back uh, back at the time, which was around uh, 1989, 1990. Um, the fashionable way to get a – I don't know the fashionable – the standard way to get a job if you were a beginning writer was to write a script for something that was already on the air. That's – changed a little bit more recently that you tend to get better uh, results if you're an aspiring writer to write uh, a pilot script for something that you make up yourself, but if there were different times. Got it. Got it. So today, most people, if they want to be a writer, they usually end up writing a, a pilot first and, and hoping that generally some several people, pilots. Some people will, like, like I'll, I'll still occasionally, if I'm hiring, like someone will write a, a Breaking Bad spec script or a Mad Men spec script, but it's much more common to see original plays, original screenplays, or original pilots. And I think that because Basic Cable has uh, jumped up so far in quality over the last decade, decade and a half, that it's uh, it's inspiring to a lot of other writers to try their hand at writing um, their own thing. Like some of the biggest hits of the last few years were actually uh, spec pilots. Mad Men began as a spec script that... Uh, Matt Weiner wrote that got him a staff job on Sopranos, um, show that I worked on, uh, Desperate Housewives, uh, began life as a spec script that the creator Mark Cherry wrote uh, when he was uh, impoverished and living in his mom's condo with his mm -hmm. cat. Um, uh, the Shield was also written as a spec pilot, so there's a real chance that if you're good, the right person reads your script, you might actually end up with a career, you know, with a career right out of the gate. Wow. Wow. Like, which... To this day, is probably still like winning the Irish sweepstakes. Absolutely, how many pilot scripts are written, et cetera, et cetera. That's it's statistically <laughs> unlikely, but hey, so is the fact that I have a job. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're great. So don't lose hope. So, so you spent uh, many years as as a staff writer. I'm curious about. Yeah. I'm curious about your journey because now you're you're executive producing. You're you're the showrunner on on Defiance. I'm curious about. Not necessarily how you go from point A to point Z, but maybe point A to point like you know D. Like, how did you go from being a staff writer to head writer to then producing? Like, what does that leap look like? Well, what one of, what one of the tricky things about being a uh, a writer producer is that if you create a show, like let's let's say that you're Mark Cherry or you're Sean Ryan or someone who creates their own show for, uh, their, their own show, and they suddenly are handed a show to run. You go from a position where you're writing, which is often a solitary pursuit, and the minute you succeed at that and someone likes what you've written, the studio and network then turn around and say, congratulations, you now have 13 episodes on the air, and since you've shown a knack for doing something in the solitude of your own home, uh, now we're going to ask you to be the CEO of a, a medium-sized business that has a $2.5 million uh, weekly cash flow, and you're going to be hiring and firing people, and you're going to have to learn all kinds of political and social skills, and you're going to have to learn what editing is and how it works and how to deal with on-the-floor on, on etiquette, and uh, good luck because you're on the air in four months. Uh, wow. It's a very, it's, it's a, it's a very, very uh, intimidating thing to do, so that for me, where I think that I was fortunate is I didn't bounce up in power too soon because the first two shows that I worked on uh, were long-running shows, and I was able to kind of gradually uh, take on more responsibility. So like my first job, which was on uh, an awful sitcom, was an awful sitcom that went for four years, and even doing something that is not great, 
you learn the skills of table reads, doing punch-ups, listening to an audience react to your work, uh, you know, learning how editing works, sitting through casting, uh, making bad casting choices and great casting choices, seeing who works on the show as a guest star, who doesn't work as a guest star, seeing how music can change the way things work. Um, and by the end of four years, I got pretty good at it. Then my next job, which was a show called Weird Science that was on USA Network mm-hmm. in, the, in the mid-90s, um, that went for 88 episodes, and it was another long-term gig that uh, kept me off the streets for like three years or so. So by the time I was done my second job, I had seven years of practical uh, TV producing experience under my, my belt. Um, and one of the things that was incredibly helpful for me was um, my boss, uh, T- Tom Speciali, uh, was wonderful on Weird Science about uh, letting me sit in and watch him talk with the editor and deal with the editing cuts. And I was, you know, an arrogant little so-and-so because I got my first job at like, you know, 20, you know, my early 20s. Uh, so I thought I knew better than anyone in the world. So I would sit there and be like, oh, he can't possibly cut that. Oh, that's going to ruin everything. It's like the best joke in the entire show. And then I would look at it again in context when the editor would show it a second time. And I would be like, wow, I, I really don't miss that. And the narrative is much cleaner and I'm really engaging with the story. Like, shit. That was a really good call. <laughs> uh, Learn something. And, and I think by learning, being in a position to just shut the fuck up and learn is one of the best teaching tools that you can have. Because when you have too much power too soon, you also have the power to shoot yourself in the foot. Mm. And because I was not given that power for my first several years, I was actually able to... Uh, perhaps get to a, a certain level of maturity before anyone actually gave me uh, too much responsibility or more yeah. responsibility than I can handle. So I, I think that my my advice to anyone who is in a position where they get a lot of power, um, listen to people who have been doing it for a long time because there is a chance that as talented as you are, they may have done it more and maybe they know more than you. Hmm. And you might not realize that right up front, but you never want to realize it after you've gotten fired from something. Cause I've seen that <laughs> so many times where on uh, desperate housewives, we had this one brilliantly talented young writer. Uh, housewives was his first gig. He wrote one of the most beautiful uh, pilot scripts that I'd you'd ever seen in my life. And he made a bunch of, uh, kind of tactical and s- political, uh, bad moves on the show and he ended up never working again after, uh, after housewives. And it was just a, a, a real waste of talent. That was that he was, he was on a hit show immediately, perhaps too soon. It, uh, it does seem like, especially nowadays that there is this sort of fly or die mentality there where, you know, there's, a, there's this responsibility hung up, handed over to some people and like they, some people are able to handle it and, and, and go with it. And some people aren't, and those are the people who, like you said, like end up being, either being fired from shows or they don't work for uh, a while or ever or what have you. Um, do you think that that has increased or it's just taking a different form uh, nowadays? Um, it's taking a different form because the – let's let's call someone in that, in that, in, in that position an auteur that uh, – the format of basic cable lends itself to the auteur paradigm, for want of a better word. Um, you're only doing 13 episodes. You have more lead time uh, to get those episodes done than you would on a network show. Uh, you have more post-production. You have more time to mess things up often um, because you're shoot- you very often you're picking up shows directly to 13 or you do a pilot and then you shoot your 12 so you can go back and anything that's wrong with your pilot you can reshoot half the pilot later on you can learn as you go that you have more capacity to make mistakes whereas in the more traditional network framework you don't find out you make your pilot in like you know january february uh march you deliver it in april you find out in may whether or not it's picked up and then july 1st you're in prep and your show goes on the air in September or October, there's no time to screw up because you're coming up against air dates. Whereas something like uh, on Defiance, for example, we uh, we shot our episode, our, our two-hour premiere in the spring. We took a few weeks off, and then we shot our next 12 episodes, but we didn't actually air until, um, until the following spring. 
So it was, so we had plenty of time to muck around and reshoot pieces of the of the of the two hour premiere, and we really had time to kind of think about it. And, and you know, I've been doing this for a lot, and we still needed that time to go back and kind of change things around because you always learn more once you get to see the show because sometimes you don't know what the show is right away, and the show tells you what it is. Right, right. I, I'm curious also because there's one you know you talked about the difference between basic cable and network television. Um, we've talked about recently on the podcast a couple of times, actually the, this speech that Kevin Spacey gave at this, uh, the Edinburgh like film intelligent festival, mm-hmm. uh, a, a few months back where you talked about house of cards and that new paradigm. Do you, I, I don't know if you've worked on anything that's been sort of like, you know, internet television, like Netflix or Hulu or anything like that, but do you see a difference there or is it, um, is it just one? It's, a, a different it's, form? It's, a, it's a variation of the, of, of the of the basic cable or premium cable uh, landscape, it's just you're dealing with more money, uh, mm. and you're dealing with bigger rolls of the dice. Like in the case of, you know, I, I, I'm not like I, I love uh, House of Cards. Like I'm a fan, but I'm not intimately, in, in, you know, in the know as to how they go about doing it. But I do know that it was part of the deal was Netflix was willing to pick them up for two seasons guaranteed, and that was very attractive to. Kevin Spacey and company, and and, and Bo, uh, Will, 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 I don't know how to say his last name, Willman, uh, as opposed to uh, other outlets where they weren't willing to make as long-term a commitment, and that required a bigger swing from Netflix to get the premium project, and it required a bigger financial commitment, because if yeah. the show gets on the air immediately and stiffs, you've made a big commitment to a show that wasn't a success, and that's, that's a risk. But that's certainly something that's not unprecedented uh, in, in the cable world, like for example, like um, Bob Greenblatt when he was just starting off uh, running Showtime, he he had the dilemma of needing to get the best possible projects away from HBO. So he picked up uh, Hank Azaria's show Huff, which mm. is one of his early yeah. shows. He picked it up for a second season, um, I believe, before the first season had even aired, uh, because he wanted to make a strong statement to the community that Showtime was there to support its artists and ultimately the show didn't go beyond the two seasons, but that was a smart risk. I think at the time, because that was how you get your A-level talent and it sent a signal to everyone in the community that even though Huff did not run for more than two seasons, Weeds did. And a lot of other shows came to, came to Showtime and were really, really successful. And he started getting talent like like Laura Linney and Tony Collette and Diablo Cody. Mm-hmm. And it was a really great strategic move uh, for, for Bob to do. And, and that's that's part of the the chess game of with all of these different fantastic uh, avenues that writers and creators and, 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 and talent can bring uh, projects. It's put the onus on the buyers to make sweeter deals in some cases if they want the best of the best. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't hurt to have some of those name talents, whether it's on screen or off kind of behind the project to, to, to swing in, course, in, in yeah. the favor of the content as well. Interesting. I, I, I do want to continue talking about like the, the showrunner and producer side of things, but there was one thing that stuck out to me. We, we have a lot of being that, you know, our show is mostly, uh, uh, driven towards actors, although uh, everyone um, sort of listens to it across the board, um, both in and out of the entertainment industry. But you said something about the casting process uh, mm-hmm. er- er- earlier and being in the room and, and smart casting choices versus you know not-so-smart casting choices and kind of learning the quote-unquote ropes as far as that aspect of it goes. What what do you feel like, you've, like you have learned um, that might you know, be interesting to someone who's on this side of the table auditioning for you, who's on the other side of the table. Like what have you, what have you picked up over the years in terms of, uh, what makes a, a, a smart casting choice, um, versus a well, let me, let me ask that in two pieces. Cause I'll, I'll first answer it from my perspective and then I'll, I'll answer it from the perspective of someone coming in as, as an actor. I think, uh, a smart casting decision often is as simple as, Pick the greatest actor, even if they perhaps are not what you originally envisioned, because it's a lot easier to mold a role to fit someone who's wonderful than it is to find someone to exactly fit 
that image that you had in your head. Uh, for example, uh, when I cast Defiance, I was not expecting to get uh, Julie Benz uh, to do the show. She did the show because, or she was willing to do the show because Jamie Murray uh, was a friend of hers from Dexter, and we had already cast Jamie, and Jamie and I had worked on uh, a short-lived show called Valentine together. And Jamie did a lot of back-channel flim-flammery to convince uh, Julie to come do Defiance because it was going to be really cool. And I think largely it was because Jamie wanted to have a buddy uh, in Toronto and not be by herself. And so I was was placed in this really unusual position of having uh, Julie, who is this really uh, wonderful kind of tough action hero in, in the role, you know, in the role. And I was like, well, I can work with that. I can, I can, I can, you know, I can, I can make, I can make the role of, of Amanda who was originally kind of Miss Kitty and Gunsmoke uh, and was originally uh, kind of more of the, the, the flouncy, you know, the flouncy madam. Uh, and, to, and, and I found a way to kind of tailor that role for uh, Julie Benz. And once I had Julie Benz in my head, I was able to really, figure out what works well in her mouth. And we'll find that in, uh, you know, doing Heather's right now is with the cast members that I know from having sit, sitting there and watching them over and over and over again, I'm able to tailor the show to what they do well because we cast really good people. Mm-hmm. And the show, and this is where I say sometimes that the show tells you what it wants to be. That's You find the people who are great, amazing, versatile actors and then they will tell you what the show is because if you're doing your job and you're being responsive and you're watching, you will make the show into something that supports what they already do well. And that's kind of where the, the, the actor and the, uh, and, the, and the writer have to function as a team if they're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. So to answer this from the other perspective, uh, smart casting decisions from, uh, from an actor's perspective is uh, the big one big basic rule that I would I would say is uh, listen to William Goldman's advice from the Adventures in the Screen Trade. Nobody knows anything. When you walk into the room, do not assume that the people across the table from you on the producer side that they know exactly what they want in the role. Often they will just they'll know it when they see it, or they think they'll know it when they see it. You may be walking in that room and they, you may think, oh my God, I'm having the best audition of my life. And you may discover that, well, there's someone else that's already been cast that's uh, a male lead that's, you know, five foot two and you're a woman who's five foot nine and you're never going to get the part because they're looking for someone who's teeny tiny. Mm-hmm. And I see so many a- actor uh, friends of mine beat themselves up because they try to outthink the process. And you really have to go in with this sort of blind leap of faith and make the audition the end in itself. Because the fastest thing that messes up an actor is when you go in and you try to game the system, outthink the process, and the people who I see succeed over and over again are the people who love the process of auditioning and are completely at ease because an actor that's at ease makes the people across from the table have a really good time. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example is that um, <clears throat> Kristen Bell um, was a... Uh, and, and what, what was an NYU student when we first auditioned her for Reefer Madness. She had one big uh, Broadway lead. She was Becky Thatcher in, uh, in, in Tom Sawyer, but that closed after just a couple of days, so it was a gigantic flop. Uh, but we had heard all about Kristen Bell, Kristen Bell, Kristen Bell from the Nederlanders who's, who were producing uh, Reefer Madness in, in New York, and this was, this was around uh, 2001. And uh, Kristen had missed her first audition, appointment and she missed her second one and by the third one we were all like oh where's this mystical Kristen Bell Who is she? <laughs> she better she better like friggin walk on water and then she walked into the audition and she was comfortable she was at ease and she was like there to have a great time and she didn't try too hard she didn't try to outthink it she didn't try how to compensate for the fact that she had missed two auditions she just she asked us questions and by the time she left, um, she sung, sung a lovely little Irving, Irving Berlin song, read a couple of sides. Uh, she was phenomenal and comfortable, and she walked out, and we all wanted to like either adopt her or marry her or both. <laughs> and she makes it look so easy mm. that 
I, I wish we had had a video camera going that there could be like a master class and how to walk into an audition and control your experience the way the way the, the way Kristen did. Um, we had that experience in Heather uh, in, in Heather's recently, where one of our actresses, Michelle Duffy, who had done our original original reading, uh, came into audition for the part of uh, Miss Fleming, the teacher, and she brought in uh, Miss Fleming's kind of a hippy dippy part, and Michelle brought in a guitar player, and she chose the song. She chose Melanie Candles in the Rain, which was the perfect choice, and she put on a little show. And she was adorable. She was there to have fun. She was comfortable. She wasn't selling herself. She was just showing off the wares. She was like, this is who I am. Yeah. If you think I'm right in the part, I'd love to do this part, but I'm not going to change who and what I am to fit the part. And that kind of attitude is the most likely way to get the person on the other side to go, I want that. I want that in my show. And if you're faced with well, yeah, but that's not exactly what the part, the part that's in the show. The writer is more likely to go, I don't care. Or the director is likely to say to the writer, why don't we adjust the script to accommodate that? Yeah. And I think that, and I think that's, that's just, a, that's just about, do you have the ability to be really comfortable in your own skin or not? Mm -hmm. Because that often is the, is, is, is the weird X factor that separates someone who works a lot and occasionally ends a role with someone who genuinely has star power or charisma is they really have to love themselves and not in a like weird, obsessive, narcissistic way, but someone that just is genuinely comfortable in their skin. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, lo I love what you said about the fact that we as the actor can, can actually make people on the other side of the table feel comfortable by just being comfortable ourselves and being at ease and, and really enjoying ourselves. It's, it's so important. Um, I want to talk about, your experience moving into the producing world. We talked, we touched on it earlier, um, especially with, uh, you know, a massive hit like desperate housewives. Like, do, is it typical for the writer or the lead writer to move into that, you know, slot, or is that something that is usually occupied by someone who has producing experience or directing experience or, you know, how does that, um, um, transition, I guess, take place. It is consistently <clears throat> inconsistent. Got it. Uh, <laughs> every single show is different. Uh, in the case of Desperate Housewives, um, producing responsibilities uh, shifted from year to year. In the first year, um, I was head writer so that before Mark and Tom, who are my bosses, saw anything everything would go through me and I would have the job of interpreting the will of the folks at the top. And I would do my best to mold all of the scripts into, fit, into fitting that. Um, as the years went on, the job responsibilities changed. Uh, we, we went into more of a sitcom writer's room kind of thing where Mark would sit there with, um, with like high powered joke writers and they would, um, and they would punch up the scripts, and it was written more like a more like a sitcom. Uh, Joe Keenan, who uh, ran Frasier uh, with Christopher Lloyd for, uh, for a while, was on staff. Jeff Greenstein, who was a producer on uh, Friends, was was on. Um, I don't know, well, I'm sorry, not Friends. Will, uh, I believe it was Will and Grace. Um, was was on you know was was on the show for a while, and they're just very high powered joke writers, and guys are way funnier than I am. <laughs> so during during that period. My job became going down and handling directors and dealing with on set. Um, I was I always had a, uh, a, a sort of area of expertise where I would, I would sort of do do Felicity Huffman's uh, storylines, and I would tend to spend a lot of time with her and going over uh, going over her material. Um, and then at certain times, my job became dealing with clip shows because we would do specials and so I would produce those. Mm. But every year it was a different set of challenges because different people would come and go on the staff and the way that the show was made uh, would change from year to year because you know, we talked before about the auteur sort of thing where Mark um, had never run a show before um, or at least an, an, an hour uh, single camera film show and certainly had never helmed a mega hit like Housewives which had 
you know, ancillary video games and trivia quizzes and soundtrack albums and, you know, uh, alternate, like, you know, web, you know, web material and just all kinds of, uh, other belt, other bells and whistles. So there was a huge amount of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I think Mark was learning as each season went on what he wanted his show to be because, Mm -hmm. you know, our, our job on housewives was to sort of service Mark and help him figure out what the voice was the show because he was the authorial voice of the show. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we, we sort of, uh, those of us who worked in the show, we just sort of go wherever, you know, the general felt we were best suited. Mm-hmm. Um, but on another show, uh, on let's say defiance, uh, I tend to stay out of the writer's room. Uh, my number twos who are, uh, uh, Todd uh, Slapping and Darren Swimmer will we'll all talk together about the general arc for the season. Uh, I'll talk about where I want to go with the characters. I'll usually have an idea where the end game is, and I'll have a couple of weird, dark, strange ideas about mm-hmm. you know what's going to happen with the characters. And then using that as a jumping off point, they will then go and figure out what the next episode is going to look like and mm-hmm. where the twists are going to come in. I come back in, they present that to me, I throw rocks at the ideas, we talk about it, and as the process goes on, we gradually settle on what the, what the episode is going to be. Um, we'll get on the phone with the network and we'll pitch the episode. Uh, usually, uh, Todd will do the pitching because Todd's a better pitcher than I am. Hmm. He's, a, he's, a, he's a master of uh, the Blarney. Uh, and he can make the phone book sound exciting and engaging, <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to sit back and listen and let him do that. Uh, and then the writers will go and do and, and do um, you know a pass at it, and then usually I will take it and I'll usually do you know uh, anywhere from a uh, hugely sizable rewrite pass to a modest rewrite pass depending on you know who wrote the original script and kind of how close it is to the voice of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, with all of that time that I spend not in the writers' room, I spend a lot of time uh, on set in Toronto. Uh, and I spend a lot of time in post-production. I'm actually the only producer that, that touches uh, post-production uh, on, on Defiance. So I deal with all the music spotting. I deal with all the editing. I deal with implementing the notes and the editing. I deal with, uh, you know, uh, sort of feedback and, and the uh, conceptualization of the, of, the, of the visual effects in conjunction with our production designer and our visual effects supervisor, which is very different from other shows. There's other shows where Law & Order, SVU, each writer is the shepherd of their own show. And and if you see that writer's name on a given episode, uh, they're also the producer. They're also supervising the cuts. They're also dealing with the production meetings. Um, Defiance, because it's such an idiosyncratic show and it's so serialized, that wouldn't work as well Mm -hmm. because of the fact that sometimes we drop scenes from one episode into another episode and the whole show needs to feel like it's of, of the exact same voice. Right. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I think you, you could go to any given showrunner and how he or she would explain the way their show gets made would be different from show to show. Yeah, whereas an SVU is kind of like a 46-minute movie or, or what have you that's sort of self-contained because of the nature of that, that show. everyone welcome back we hope you enjoyed the first part of our chat or my chat i guess i should say with um kevin murphy um yeah a lot of a lot of great stuff in there about uh the nuts and bolts of not necessarily making it happen but what makes it happen if you what i mean by that is is you know he doesn't he doesn't necessarily dive into like here's how it's done he he sort of you know, pulls back the covers and is like, this is what the, the, the sort of the blueprint of the industry looks like these days. And, uh, he also, I don't know if it's in this part or the, or the second part where he says it's, um, consistently inconsistent. So while there's, uh, there's a lot of things that sort of are, are, are similar or take similar forms, uh, it's there's no there's no set anything and uh, if there's one thing that we've learned about the entertainment industry in doing this podcast it's that right on so part two is coming at uh, 
everybody, myself included, next week. Let's move on to our picks of the week, dude. What do you got? Uh, my pick of the week is the Lego movie. This is what I'll say. The Lego movie did $62.5 million in its second weekend. It was number one at the box office. And it's because everyone went out that saw it the first weekend and told their friends how awesome it is. A lot of people who saw the trailer thought, oh, this looks fun. But a lot of people also had a bit of trepidation. They were a little bit um, you know, nervous that it wouldn't be good. It's brilliant, brilliant filmmaking. Brilliant filmmaking. There are so many little quirks and cute, like, funny little things in it. It doesn't matter if you were a fan of Legos when you were a kid. It doesn't matter if you're a boy, girl, man, woman, child. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are. There is something for everybody in this movie. It is hysterical. It is really well done. The storytelling is brilliant. And they use a combination of stop-motion animation and CGI, so it really does look like you're watching a bunch of Legos come to life. That is my glowing review for it. I saw it this week. I went out with some of the Heathers cast, and we were falling all over ourselves in love with this movie. And for those of you who listen to the podcast who also happen to follow me on Twitter or Facebook, the thing I tweeted after, upon immediately... Uh, following uh, uh, leaving the the theater was yeah the the award for the most unexpected social commentary goes to the Lego movie right from the get go I mean from the from the moment the movie starts it's right there um, and it's it's that's that's so awesome to hear because number one I'm a huge Lego fan like I grew up. I remember we had a big plastic tub of Legos. Like, seriously, it was like three feet tall and like two feet wide. And we just filled it with Legos when I was a kid. And we'd just go upstairs and dump it on the floor and spend hours just like hunting through and building random shit. So Legos are a a huge part of my childhood. But also, I saw the trailer for the movie and I was kind of like, eh, it looks all right. So it's good to hear that that, uh, my judgment of what the movie might be was very off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that it's actually as brilliant as everybody as I hoped it would be. Yeah, and I got extra lucky too because the day before I went to the movie, I went to see this exhibit at the Discovery Museum, as in the Discovery Channel. They've been doing that yeah, body, body works, works or something like that, or that that's been traveling around the country. It was in Vegas, or maybe still is in Vegas, a lot. In that same space here in New York, they've got another exhibit. Um, by this artist named, I think it's Nicholas Sawaya. And he is a sculptor who makes everything entirely out of Lego pieces. His art is, just like the Lego movie, surprisingly epic and gorgeous and amazing. And I was really, really blown away by it. The amount of thought that he puts into his pieces. So imagine going to see that, and then the next day going to see the Lego movie. It was like a... It was not Lego Overload. Yeah. It was it was beautiful. It was Lego art. That's what it was. Lego art. It's like, hey man, what do you do? Oh, I'm an artist. Oh, really? What medium do you work in? Legos. <laughs> well, and the thing was about him is he used to be a lawyer. Like he went to law school. He studied studied corporate law. So he has this history of of being in the corporate world, but wanting to go home and play with play with Legos and build stuff out of Legos every night. And so in addition to all of his art being just incredible, he also had these brilliant, beautiful quotes about art all over his gallery. And I just want to read one because this made me think of it. So I looked it up real quick. I I took a picture of it. It says, art makes better humans. Art is necessary in understanding the world and art makes people happy. Undeniably, art is not optional. Uh, Nathan, Nathan Sawaya is his name, not Nicholas, but oh, I was so, so blown away by it. Maybe we can post a link to, to his gallery up on, uh, up on our website as well. Sweet. What's your pick of the week? My pick of the week is uh, a short little ebook by a guy named Colin Wright. Uh, I really dig this guy's work. He has a blog called Exile Lifestyle or My Exile 
exile lifestyle, and essentially he lives in a new country every four months, and these countries are voted on by his readers. And he writes a lot of these little books. A lot of them are how-to books, um, but he's he's venturing more and more into fiction now. He's got several collections of short stories and things like that. But this book, um, which I bought on Amazon.com for like, I don't know, maybe three bucks and downloaded it to my Kindle, is called Curation is Creation. And it's just sort of a, a meditation on what uh, sharing on the Internet is, uh, essentially, in the, you know, these days. The different ways we share uh, logistically from the tools we share, but also, you know, what does it mean when we share something personally versus when we share a resource or a cool thing we've learned about with people? And what is our role as a curator and what are ways to leverage, essentially, the fact that we are all curators online now. Um, so it was a really interesting read. Uh, and I definitely learned a lot, and it shifted the way I think about sharing things on the interwebs. So I thought uh, it'd make a great pick of the week. What's one takeaway from, uh, from, the, from the book? Maybe even something uh, that you think you might apply to the podcast. Sure. Uh, lots of takeaways, but the thing that comes to mind right off the bat... Uh, is that we are perceived as cure? If you're on the inter- internet, if you're on Facebook, if you're on Twitter, if you have a Tumblr blog or anything like that, you are a curator, and you are perceived as a curator, kind of whether you like it or not. The way to capitalize on your online presence, especially in the context of curation, is simply to remain consistent and constantly be seeking what value you can bring to your audience and recognizing who your audience is. Like are, if you're, if you are a, you know, like a sports car enthusiast, um, recognizing that that is what people who are following you are interested in hearing about from you. And then, um, you know, just being conscious of that and, and finding the value that you can provide for people, uh, in how you share the things that you find interesting. It, it's, it's, Difficult to distill it down to one thing, but that's kind of the best I can do right there. That, that's yeah. awesome. I mean, you you actually, I I asked for one thing, and you you gave us like three <laughs> all shoved into just a matter yeah. of uh, you know sixty seconds or so there. So that was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, cool, man. So we also have a, a listener pick uh, of the week from Freddie. Uh, Freddie writes in, and he says that the book Fearless by a guy named Eric. Bleem, Bleem, Blem, maybe, B-L-E-H-M, uh, is kind of in the same vein as the the book Lone Survivor, of which there is now a feature film starring Mark Wahlberg and Taylor Kitsch and many other fantastic actors. Um, and he said it's, it's just a really, really great read. And as soon as I read this email, I thought, you know, like like you said before we started recording, you said, like, yeah, it does, it doesn't have much to do with acting, but we were excited to kind of include it. And I thought, you know, in uh, in Larry Moss's book, The Intent to Live, I remember really specifically. I read that book like eight or nine years ago. I should really bust it open again. Um, but he says uh, he always encourages his actors to be reading fiction because it stimulates the imagination mm, and mm-hmm. um, also kind of like flexes the focus muscle in the imaginative realm um, like nothing else can. And so I, th- I remember reading He's that. He's really big on that, too. Yeah, and I remember reading that and being like, oh, so it's not a waste of time for me to be reading fiction. Because <laughs> it feels like one of those luxury things, you know? But the cool thing about being actors and artists and stuff is that watching movies and reading fiction and things like that, it, it, it's all kind of like research. It's all research and development. So, um, or fi- filling the well, heck, as Julie Cameron would say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> filling the well. So it, it all come goes to the same place. So uh, the book Fearless by Eric, I'm just going to say Blem. I'm sure that's incorrect, but that's how it looks on the, the page. Um, sounds like a good read. So check it out. Link is on our website. And thank you, Freddie, for the recommendation. And speaking of our, uh, not only a patron of the week, but a new patron... Yeah, Michael Pauly is our newest patron. He just um, signed up to support us on a recurring weekly, I'm sorry, recurring monthly basis. 
just this past week. So, Michael, thank you so much for your support, man. It means the world to us, as everybody's heard us say many, many times. So all we need from you, Michael, is a little headshot photo and a blurb with some links to your relevant websites that we can throw up on our Patreon page so the world can know um, how awesome you are for supporting us. And then also, uh, our patron of the week is a guy who's been very supportive of the podcast for a long time. His name's, I think it's Stefan Goldbach. Stefan is a New York City-based bilingual actor with strong ties to both Los Angeles and Berlin. And then he writes in his blurb, Maybe merely coincidental, his first sprayer and MC alter ego was drawn from a character in Macbeth. He now spends more time on stages and in front of cameras. And then we've got links to his Twitter and his IMDb and his website over on our website. So, Stefan, thank you for your support. You are our patron of the week, and we hope everybody checks out your stuff because um, it's pretty awesome. So um, lots of different ways that you, uh, listening to the show, can support the podcast. If you dig what we do, of course, we would so appreciate you sharing uh, the love and telling your friends about it, sending out a tweet or making a Facebook post and basically telling people that you get you get some value from this thing you can also communicate with us directly uh via email inside acting podcast at gmail.com twitter which uh is just twitter.com slash inside acting we also have a facebook page a facebook group and a voicemail a voicemail line that uh, has been a little bit unloved recently you can call it and uh and and leave us a voicemail at 2132 actors that's 213222 8677. Woohoo! And what else can they do? Uh, they can. I think you. I think you mentioned everything except for donate to the podcast. <laughs> um, you can donate to the podcast by going to our website insideactingpodcast.com Click on the link on the right hand side. Become a patron, a patron of the week, just like Stefan Goldbach uh, or our newest patron, Michael Polly. Uh, or you can just leave us one uh, lump sum of money. And uh, help us pay for this bi-coastal recording setup. <laughs> and help us keep the wheels on the bus. And help us make pay, uh, listeners like Marie happy by having the resources to figure out where, you know, 35 episodes of the podcast went. Yeah. <clears throat> they got lost yes. in the Podbean shuffle. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a weird dance. So for Jen Levin, our production coordinator, Cesar Camino, our technical producer... Both of them working lots and lots of magic behind the scenes. Thank you very much, guys. I am your co-host, Trevor Elgott. And I'm your other co-host, AJ Meyer. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome. This episode of Inside Acting has been brought to you in part by Rehearsal 2, the app for actors. Want to learn your lines fast? Be off book for auditions? Explore your characters and make stronger choices? There's an app for that. Rehearsal 2. Download it now at rehearsaltheapp.com download. That's rehearsaltheapp.com download.